morning. <laughs> you just want to stay standing? <laughs> Good morning. <clears throat> can, I, can I just look at you for a minute? <clears throat> it's been a really long time since I've had the privilege of... I really don't, I really, really, really don't like you looking at me, but I love looking at you. I really do. Wow. You know what today is? Today is the first Sunday of our church plant having their first service. That's where our wonderful pastor is tonight, today. Pastor Mark is in Heath, Texas, so keep those, those dear ones. Thank you, Chris. Keep those dear ones our brothers and sisters in Christ and Heath, keep them in your prayers today, please. Um, speaking of prayer, I've had to do this before, and I, I, I've been thinking about this for weeks, and I still don't have the words to thank you for your prayers for me and my family. Um, as many of you know, I uh, started off the new year. I haven't been around much um, receiving uh, immunotherapy treatment for kidney cancer. And um, it's, uh, it's a, an amazing drug, uh, this uh, IL-2 um, that they give me. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing, incredible drug, but it's also amazing and incredibly difficult on the body. It, it's, it's really, really hard. And your prayers, I can promise you, were heard. And your love and your prayers, whether you prayed for me one time or every day, as some of you did, you just carried us through. Uh, really rough time, rough couple of months. Um, again, I don't, I don't know how to say thank you for that, but um, my body is responding positively to the treatments, which might mean more treatments ahead. I don't know. That's up to the Lord. But if, as God might put me on your heart from time to time, if you pray for us, that'd be, I'd appreciate that so much. Okay, I have a question. I have a question for you. <clears throat> have you ever had to make a decision, and you had two choices, two options, two very different things that you were trying to decide which one you want. Maybe something you were going to buy, or someone you were going to marry. Something big, a big decision, and both looked good, <clears throat> and you didn't know which to choose. This is exactly where we're going to find Apostle, Apostle Paul today, as he wrestles with basically a life and death decision. And as he weighs his options... Do you know what Paul's going to do for us? Paul is going to share insights from the Lord into three questions that I'll bet you and I have asked probably more than once, probably many times. Here are the questions that Paul is going to answer for us today in this passage. He's going to answer the question is of what is the meaning, what is the purpose of life? What is your purpose in life? He's going to answer that. Second, what happens after we die? What really happens after we die? Paul's going to talk about that. And third, Paul's going to talk about what is the value, what is the purpose of suffering? Value and suffering? If you've ever wondered about any of these things, you picked a great morning to come to church because God is going to answer those questions. Let's pray together. Father, we, we first of all just uh, praise you for what you're doing in Heath, Texas. Um, just pray your blessing on Pastor Mark and Pastor Chris. <clears throat> uh, just fill that place. Fill that little school where they're meeting. Just uh, This is the beginning of something great, a, a work you're going to do. And you are the head of that church just like you are the head of this church. And we thank you and we praise you for that. And Lord, now as we open <clears throat> our Bibles, 
We are going to read the words that you've written for us. So we need you, you and your Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord, so that we can understand the things that are really too high above our heads to understand. But with your Holy Spirit teaching us, you can make it real to us and we can obey and we can leave here changed. I pray for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish Philippians chapter 1. Last Sunday was Easter. And two Sundays ago, Pastor Mark took us through verses 12 to 20. Let me refresh our memory on two themes that Pastor Mark showed us two weeks ago. The reason this is important is because the verses, there are two themes in verses 12 to 20 that carry over into our passage today. First, Pastor Mark showed us that God works in contrary ways. Do you remember that? God works in contrary ways. God often works in ways we don't expect. God has this way of taking something that we think is bad and he makes it very good. And the example we saw was Paul. Paul was in prison. So we might think, well, that's bad news for the gospel. Logic would dictate if the apostle Paul's locked in prison, then that's going to be the end of spreading the gospel. <laughs> Logic would be wrong. Paul, while well, he's chained to those Roman guards, remember Paul kept preaching Christ to those Romans that were chained to him. So the gospel spread right into Caesar's, Caesar's court. And when all the other believers saw how Paul, bold Paul was being, they became fearless in their proclamation of the gospel everywhere they went. Second theme we saw that I'll carry over today is that Paul wanted Jesus to be exalted in everything Paul did. Whether Paul lived where Paul died, he wanted Christ to be glorified. I saw the outline come up. Let's put the outline up one more time again. Thank you for that. This is the outline for today. <laughs> yeah, in the next 30 minutes, we're going to talk about the purpose of living, the benefit of dying, and the value of suffering. But it's good. Let's read together. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 30. Have I told you yet how beautiful you all are? I mentioned that. You're looking really good today. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. There's a lot there. <clears throat> Paul declares, For to me to live is Christ. I have to wonder, how would you how would I complete that sentence for your life and my life? How would you answer that sentence? For you to live is what? What are you living for? What am I living for? 
Some of us might say, well, you know, I'm living for the day I get married or have children or grandchildren or I'm living for the day when I can make more money. I'm living for the day when I can retire. I'm living for the day when this difficult situation I'm in finally gets resolved. Whatever your answer is, here's why the question is so important. Your life and my life is summed up in the things that we live for. Our biggest wants in life, our biggest wants in life define who you are and who I am. I met a man one time in Detroit. I said, hi, I'm Dave, and I shook his hand, and he said, hi, I'm local 685 Carpenters. Instead of telling me his name, he told me his union affiliation. He was so proud of being a professional carpenter, and well so, that he didn't even bother to tell me his name. He defined himself only by his work. He never did tell me his name. We live in a career-driven society, don't we? You meet someone, you ask them, what's your name? And then usually the next question you ask is, well, what do you do? What do you do? Our name, our name tells people what to call us. But our occupation, especially in America, our occupation tells people what to think about us. Our occupation establishes our place or our value in the world. So what do you and I value most in our lives? What is your reason? What is my reason for being? What is your purpose? What is my purpose in life? Paul answers the question in verse 21 very simply. He says, for me to live is Christ. One word answer, Christ. Paul summed up his whole life in Jesus. Paul, Jesus was Paul's reason for everything he did. Jesus was Paul's reason for being. Nothing was more important to Paul than his Savior. <clears throat> Do you remember what Paul was like before he met Jesus? In his former life, Paul would have said, for me to live is me. Paul was all about his proud Jewish heritage, his superior education and his position of importance in the community and in the synagogue. <clears throat> but when Paul met Jesus, everything changed. Here's Paul, the man that used to hate Jesus, now wanted to be like Jesus more than anything else in the world. Let's peek ahead to Philippians chapter 3. Just turn over a page to Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Look what Paul wrote about his desire to become like Christ. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. We're reading in the New American Standard, by the way. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a Bible in the chairs in front of you. Please feel free to use it and take it home with you if you'd like it. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already attained it or already become perfect. Perfect means to become like Christ. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How do we become more like Christ? How do we become more like Jesus? Paul tells us one thing we don't do, one thing we do not do, we do not look in the rearview mirror of our lives. We do not dwell on past mistakes that might discourage us or past accomplishments that might puff us up and think we've already arrived. Paul says phooey on that. I'm sure he used the word phooey. He said phooey on that. <clears throat> 
Our prize is in front of us. The prize is in front of it. Reach for it with everything you've got every day of your life. You know, Paul often compared the Christian life to a runner in a race that stays focused on the finish line because that is where the prize is waiting. Well, sometimes in this race that we're running, sometimes we have to run in pain for a while. All athletes know that pain is part of the game. You press on because the victory is so much sweeter than whatever you have to go through to get there. And Paul wrote about this in Romans 8.18. It'll be on the screen for you. Romans 8.18. Look what Paul wrote. Paul was a man who suffered a lot. And look what he wrote. He said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. They're not worthy to even be mentioned compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory, that prize that's waiting for you and I at the finish line. Well, the wonderful thing about this race we're running, everyone who makes it to the finish line with Jesus wins. Nothing compares. Nothing compares, Paul writes, to what we have in Jesus. So the question for you and me is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that nothing compares to what we have in Christ? Do we live like we believe this? Do we make our choices like we believe that? Do we, do we make our behavioral choices based on the fact that we believe that nothing compares to what we have in Christ? If this morning you and I are not living for Jesus, what are we living for? Paul had everything to live for in Christ. And he had even more to die for. Look at the end of verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And then he says this odd thing. To die is gain. How can death be gain? When, when, when somebody dies, don't we say to the family, I'm sorry for your loss? How does that become gain? You know, if you ask most Americans, most Americans will tell you they're afraid of dying. They're afraid of death. Fear of dying is one of the top ten fears in America today. But the fear of dying is not the number one fear. Do you know what the number one fear is among Americans today? The number one fear is public speaking. Fear of public speaking is the number one fear in America. Death, fear of death is number five. Fear of loneliness is number seven. So I guess that means most people would rather die alone than risk making a fool out of themselves in front of others. <laughs> Let's look more closely at Paul's thought process as he evaluates the advantages of living and dying. Let's read together verses 22 to 24 in Philippians 1. Paul writes, but if I am to live on in the flesh, flesh here doesn't mean the sinful nature, it just means being physically alive. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, to be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh, to stay here on earth, is more necessary for your sake. Okay, right off the bat we see that Paul clearly had no fear of death. Fear of dying was not on Paul's top ten list of scary things. And here's what really impresses me about Paul. This blows me away. Paul lived his life every day in constant danger. Yet, Paul never, Paul never let fear influence his decisions. What Paul did instead is he just trusted in Christ and he trusted God for the outcomes. He didn't worry about what are all the what ifs, this, what if that, what if this happens. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how much time, how often do you and I let fear 
cloud our thinking? How often do you and I let fear cloud our thinking? How often do we get distracted or paralyzed by worrying? What things would you and I do for the Lord if we were unafraid of what might happen if we followed Him? Do you want to see something fascinating about fear? Of course you do. That's why you came to church today. Look what Paul wrote in a letter to a young man named Timothy. It's going to be on the screen for you. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. But this is from uh, 2 Timothy 1.7. Look at this amazing statement. Paul writes, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. See that? I think we all know what fear means. What does timidity mean? Timidity means a lack of courage, a lack of confidence, Timidity means we're easily frightened. Timidity means we go through life not as a roaring lion, we're more of a cringing chicken. That's what timidity means. Paul had way too much confidence to ever be timid, timid, but not confidence in himself. His confidence was in Christ. Look, if you and I put our confidence in anything other than God, we should be timid because anything other than God can fail. The only way chickens can turn into lions is by trusting in the unfailing, all-powerful, perfect Lord. Okay, so since fear and timidity do not come from the Lord, where do those feelings come from? Well, they come from inside us. They come from our weak and fallen human flesh. Satan plays a role too. But I don't think Satan has to work too hard at that. I think most of us can freak ourselves out without much outside assistance. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. To defeat fear, to defeat timidity in your life and my life, God gives us power, His power, to do everything He gives us to do. And God gives us love, His reassuring love, and God gives us self-discipline. Self-discipline. What role does self-discipline play in the believer's life? Self-discipline means self-control, which is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23 will be on the screen. Just let's review this for a moment, because these are the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, He gives us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And there it is, self-control, self-discipline. Without self-discipline, without self-control, Our natural appetite for comfort and pleasure can easily become our master and cause us to live for ourselves instead of living for Christ. God gives us the self-discipline we need to defeat our ungodly impulses, including our ungodly fears, so that we can become less and less like the world and more and more like His Son. Here's a question. You don't need to answer it out loud, but you can think honestly in your heart. Do you think think God understands when we're afraid and we're timid? Do you think God understands when maybe you're afraid or you're timid? Does God understand that? Hebrews 4.15 answers the question. That's coming up for you. Hebrews 4.15. Can I have Hebrews 4.15, please? (laughs) It's coming. I want you to see this. This is great. 
Does God understand when we're fearful and timid? The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came to earth as the God-man. Jesus was fully God, 100% God, but for a period of time of about 30-some years, he was also completely human like you and me. He had a flesh and blood body. And as a human, Jesus faced every fear, every opportunity to be timid, and every temptation that you and I have faced or will ever face. Yet Jesus never sinned. Jesus never caved in under the pressure like we do sometimes. Do you want to see the huge, ginormous advantage this gives us in life? Let me have the next passage, please. This is putting verses 14 and 15 to, uh, 15 and 16 together of Hebrews 4. Let me read verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Therefore, or so because of that, look at what happens. We, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where does unshakable confidence come from? If you want unshakable confidence, where's it going to come from? One place. Unshakable confidence comes from getting as close to Jesus as we possibly can. That's where it comes from. When we draw near to Jesus, we find his mercy and we find his help in our time of need. Aren't we always in a time of need? Don't we need God's mercy and grace Kind of to get through every day. Sometimes don't we need God's mercy and grace just to get through the next minute? We find what we need in Jesus and what we find in Jesus we cannot find anywhere else. We find what we need in Jesus and what we find in Jesus we cannot find anywhere else. Paul has more to say about the purpose of living. But before we get to that, let's see what Paul says about the benefit of dying at the second point of our outline. In Philippians 1.21, Paul writes, to die is gain. And then in verse 23, we saw that he said, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ because that is very much better. The Greek word Paul uses for desire, his desire to be with Christ, that word desire means that Paul longed to be with Jesus. He yearned. He ached to be home with his Savior. Have you ever been away from your home way too long and got seriously homesick? Have you ever done that? One time years ago, my work took me to Costa Rica. I was there for months. I got so homesick in Costa Rica. One time I called the office and they put me on hold for a moment and we had a radio that played hold music. But, but on this, uh, this time when I called in, it, they weren't playing music, they were doing a traffic report. And they were giving me the traffic report on the 91 freeway, and the traffic was miserable, and I started to cry because the 91 freeway is my freeway. That's the freeway I drive to get home, and I just longed. I was so far away. That traffic sounded so good to me. <laughs> Paul couldn't wait to get home to Jesus. That's how he felt. It sounded so good to him. You know, he wrote something similar to this to his, uh, to, in his letter to the Corinthian believers. That'll be on the screens for you. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul wrote, We're of good courage. We're really happy because they say we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. 
Okay, let's look at what Paul just said, because this tells us what happens after we die. Paul did not say when we're absent from the body, when, our, when, when, when we die, that we go into some kind of waiting room or some kind of holding pattern until Jesus is ready for us. When we're absent from our body, when our soul leaves our physical body, we go straight home, fastest route possible to be with Christ. Just as we read in Philippians 1.23, he said, when we depart here, we're immediately with, we're with Jesus. No wonder Paul said that to depart is very much better. Look what else Paul wrote about what's coming. This, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9 is coming on the screen. This will, again will be in the New Living Translation. But Paul writes, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I love this verse. I've got a really active imagination. And God says, whatever I can dream up isn't even close to what he's got prepared for us. When you and I trust in Christ, when we trust in Christ, death for you and me becomes just the moment when we shed all of our earthly burdens and we go straight to heaven where Jesus has prepared a place for us that is greater than anything we've ever seen, heard, or can possibly imagine. This is what all believers can look forward to when we die. But before we get to that moment, God gives each one of us a certain amount of years here on earth. So what are you and I supposed to be doing with the years that God gives us? Paul tells us in verse 22 of Philippians 1. Look at it again. He says, but if I am to remain, to live on in the flesh, to remain here on earth, this will mean what? Fruitful labor. God plants us on earth to be fruitful. God plants us on earth to be fruitful. He gives us work to do. He gives us work to do for his kingdom and for his glory. So another, here's another question. There's a lot of questions that come out of this passage today. Is your life, is my life a fruitful labor? Or is it just a labor? Is your life, is my life a fruitful labor or is it just a labor? In verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, let's look at that again. He says, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is so much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh, to stay here on the earth, is more necessary for your sake. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is talking like he's a captain of a ship in a foreign port. And after a long voyage, the captain can't wait to turn that ship around and sail home. But... The captain's desire to depart is counterbalanced by his conviction that he needs to stay in the foreign port until he fully serves the purpose, the purpose of his voyage. God has placed you and me in this foreign port called Southern California. And he's given each of us, you and me, a specific purpose to fulfill. Our purpose, our purpose is to live for Jesus and serve him in fruitful labor. Your purpose and my purpose is to live for Jesus and serve him in fruitful labor. I hope that each one of us has the deep conviction that we want to fulfill our purpose before we go home. By the way, how do we know when our work or our purpose is finished? We know we're finished when God calls us home. Let's read on, verses 25 to 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Can you see how badly Paul 
Paul wants to be with those, those Philippian believers? Can you see how much he yearns to be with them? He hopes he can soon get out of prison just so he can be with them again and they can all rejoice together in Christ. I hope you and I never take for granted the blessing we have of getting to see each other as often as we do. Paul was indeed released from prison a short time after he wrote this letter and he did get to visit Philippi one more time. But Paul was later then mar martyred in Rome. As Paul thinks about his beloved Philippian believers and he thinks about you and me, he writes some instructions. He gives them important instructions to follow whether he comes to see them or not. Let's read these. Paul kind of shifts gears here a little bit. He gets very pastoral. Look at verses 27 to 28. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. This word conduct, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word conduct means to live as a citizen. Conduct means live as a citizen. Paul is saying one thing you and I must do is live as a citizen worthy of the kingdom of God. How do we do that? How do we live in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God? How do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel? How on earth do we do that? Paul tells us by doing three things. By standing firm by being united in perfect cooperation with each other and not worrying about the opposition. When Paul says to stand firm, he's using a military term used for soldiers that bravely stood their ground no matter how severe the battle. So you and I are called to stand firm. Paul, when Paul says be with one mind, one focus, striving together, this word strive means to put out a great effort. Hmm. Why do we need to put out a great, great effort? You know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. Because by nature, you and I, as lovely as we are, we're selfish people. <clears throat> we have selfish desires. Unity, <clears throat> unity takes great effort. The Lord does not want us divided by our differences. God wants us united by our desire to see his agenda accomplished above our own. God doesn't want us worrying and quibbling and fussing about our differences. God wants us united in our desire to see his agenda accomplished above our own. Paul's getting fired up here. Can you sense his energy rising when he writes finally, in no way whatsoever be scared of your opponents? Okay, who are the opponents Paul's writing about? Well, in Paul's day, in the Philippians' day, he's talking about the Romans. When Paul and the Philippians proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, this really upset the Romans because the Romans claimed that Caesar is Lord. They had a conflict. And the Romans had the power, so they threw the followers of Jesus into prison and executed them by the thousands. Paul says, don't worry about those people. <clears throat> well, today, where does our opposition come from? Our opposition comes from everyone that wants to be their own Lord, which is just about everybody. People get very upset when we say Jesus is Lord, when they say, no, I'm my own Lord. The world is getting more and more hostile to the gospel. And of course, Satan is behind this. Satan is the leader of the opposition. But Paul says, don't be alarmed. This word alarmed in the Greek is such a vivid word. You know what it means? This word alarmed that Paul used means to be uh, startled. means to be startled and stampede like a bunch of frightened horses. Can you picture that? 
Isn't that how we feel sometimes when we think about living for Christ? We feel frightened and we, like horses, we just want to run away. But Paul says our boldness is a sure sign of defeat for our spiritual enemies, Satan and his followers. How does that work? How so? How is our boldness a sign of defeat for them? Our enemy knows one thing for certain. The enemy knows he can't stop God. So the only weapon, the only weapon the enemy has is fear to try to stop you and me. If we refuse to be intimidated, there goes their one and only weapon. And it's a sure sign of defeat for them and victory for us. Out in the world, of course, it can be intimidating to live for Jesus. Of course. But when you and I keep our eyes on Christ, it's amazing how bold we can be. Okay, now we come to the final part of our outline. The value, yeah, value of suffering. How can suffering possibly have value? Don't we want to avoid suffering? Let's read the final two verses. <clears throat> Verse 29 to 30, Philippians 1. Paul writes, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Another question for you to think about. When you find yourself going through a painful situation, do you ever think God has abandoned you? Does that thought ever cross your mind when you're going through something painful? God has abandoned you? When you're suffering, maybe for a long time, have you ever wondered why am I going through this? Where is God? Verse 29 answers that question for us with a key word. He writes, for to you it has been granted, that's the key word, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Granted means to allow, to give. This verse declares something that you and I really need to understand about each and every hardship we may face. God is sovereign. This means God is in complete, total control of anything and everything that happens in your life and in my life. God has a perfect plan for your life and a perfect plan for my life. And his perfect plan includes times when God grants or God gives us the privilege to suffer. Privilege? Yes. God declares that you and I have been given the privilege of trusting in Jesus and also the privilege of suffering for Jesus. Our perfect, loving Lord gives us times when our suffering brings Him glory and brings us closer to His Son. God gives us, God grants us times of suffering when our suffering brings Him glory and brings us closer to his son. The word suffer in verse 29 means to suffer under persecution, but it also means to suffer any kind of hardship or to suffer under strong temptation. In verse 30, Paul says he and the Philippians were experiencing the same conflict. This word conflict in the Greek is where we get our English word agony. Agony can be physical, but agony can also be emotional, mental, or spiritual. Let's look at what Paul wrote about these different kinds of suffering in 2 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 12.10. This is amazing. Look what Paul said about suffering and agony. 
Paul writes, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. I am well content with insults. I'm well content with distresses. I'm well content with persecutions. And I'm well content with difficulties. That's that word conflicts, agony again. I'm well content with agony, Paul writes. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, for when I'm weak and I'm at my worst, I'm at my best, I'm strong. You know, contentment, contentment may be the rarest quality of life found in the world today. I think contentment might be the rarest quality of life found in the world today. Everyone seems restless and needy. Not a lot of contentment out there. Do you know, according to God's word, do you know what real contentment is? Do you know what real contentment is? True contentment is total satisfaction with God. True contentment is total, complete satisfaction with God. Paul was well satisfied with everything God did in his life, even the hard stuff. Paul's faith in Christ made him stronger and stronger, even when he was in conditions of weakness and vulnerability. Many of you knew my mother. She had cancer. She had Parkinson's. And shortly before she went straight home to be with the Lord, I told her one time how sorry I was for her suffering. You know what she said to me? She said, I never question God. I just tell him I'm grateful. Mom was well content in weakness. She was totally satisfied with whatever the Lord allowed in her life, whatever the Lord gave her. I pray for you and me. I pray that we all learn to say, Lord, if you grant it, I'm content with it. If you grant it, Lord, I'm content with it. You know, sometimes our hardships get to be more than we can bear. Have you ever been there? Look what Paul wrote about an experience he had in Asia. It'll be on the screen, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 9. Look what Paul wrote. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in, us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. While Paul was in Asia, he and his colleagues, all spirit-filled believers, were crushed beyond their ability to endure. Things got so bad, Paul was pretty sure they were all going to die. When they felt completely overwhelmed, they did the best thing that they or we can possibly do when we're overwhelmed. What did they do? They stopped relying on themselves. And they put all, all of their trust in God. Especially when we're suffering. Especially when we're suffering. We can't trust our own thinking. But we can always trust God's thinking. So many times we can't trust our own thinking. We're going to get it wrong every time. But we can always trust God's thinking. We can trust in the God who raises the dead, who brings his unlimited power and purpose into every situation we face. When I was in the hospital at USC, Jeff, I was at USC. When I was in the hospital in January, we met a man named Ike. I'll show you a picture of Ike. Ike's the one standing up. Actually, I didn't meet Ike right away. He met my family. I was unconscious at the time that Ike showed up. Ike was sent to help me at a particularly uh, 
rough time when I needed round-the-clock care. My immunotherapy treatment is with high-dose IL-2, interleukin-2, high-dose IL-2. This medicine really, really throws your systems out of whack. It's bad stuff. My vital signs got so bad on one night that a doctor, not my doctor, but a doctor on call told my family that was there that I might not make it through the night, that I very likely may die. This was just about the time that Ike showed up in my room. He walked in and he saw that my family had the sentence of death hanging in the room. As it turns out, Ike is a wonderful brother in Christ. And he took my family in his arms and led them in a powerful prayer of confidence. Yeah, there were tears, of course, but a prayer of confidence in God at this crucial time. We found out later, you'll find this interesting, I still do. We found out later that Ike actually works downstairs in the clinic. He hardly ever comes upstairs to the hospital. He told us that he hardly ever gets called to a patient's room. But on this night, he was called to my room. Any guess who called him? You know, God obviously knew we needed to claim that promise that night. And last week on Easter, we got a text from Ike, and he said, may the power of the resurrection visit every situation in our life in Jesus. May the power of the resurrection visit every situation of our life in Jesus. That's exactly Ike's text. is exactly what Paul wrote when he said, told us to trust in God who raises the dead. In Christ, in Christ, we can experience the power of the resurrection in every situation we face. In Christ, we can face the worst and come out the best. We can face the worst, come out the best. Our prayer team will be over here to pray with you at the conclusion of the service. Uh, Chris, you want to come back up? Let me close this in prayer. Father, each one of us needs to answer that question. <laughs> what are we living for? Dear Lord, I pray that each one of us is living for you. But if we're not living for you, would you please show us that in our hearts? Show us where we've gotten off track. We want to live for you, Lord. Father, thank you for the, the glory, the prize, the everlasting prize that's waiting for us at the finish line. Father, I pray that right now you would please touch the heart of the one here that has never trusted in you as Lord and Savior. Please convict them how much they need to know you, Lord, so that they can have that prize waiting for them at the end of their life. And Lord, I pray now that you would teach each one of us to be content with everything you grant, everything you give us. Teach us to say, Lord, if you grant it, I'm content with it. In Jesus' name, amen.